love stuck with them. Good, good. All right. I got a question for y'all. Do you remember the verse we learned last week? It was from 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. Do you remember what it said? God is... God is... Love. Very good. So, I have a new verse for you this week. It's 1 John chapter 4. That's messing with my microphone. If you can stop, that would be great. Um, 1 John, like, just, yeah, thank you. 1 John, back up, chop down. There you go. Thank you. All right. 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. You know what it says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. God is Well, he is truth, but that's not what it says in verse 16. God is love. You've got to stop. You've got to stop. Like the, the bump is messing with the mic. Thank you. Um, 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. It says, God is love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, it says, God is love. I mean, Jesus did say in the Gospel of John, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So you're not wrong. He is. But why would John repeat himself? Why would he say the same thing twice? God is love. Why would he say it twice? Because it's the most important thing. Have you ever had to repeat yourself? Has your mother ever had to repeat herself? Yes, yes, and yes. Okay. Sometimes that tells you what's important. All right. That works. Um, so what is imp what does God want to make sure that you know? That God is love. All right. I think you get it. Can I pray for you guys? Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for these children, for the gift that they are to our church and to our families. We pray your blessing over them as they study more of your word in Hope for Kids today. Fill them with your Holy Spirit and lead them to a deeper understanding of how much you love them and help them to remember that God is love. love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Y'all have a great time and hope for kids. Will you join me in prayer as we prepare our hearts for God's word this morning? God, our loving Father, we come before you as we open your word. We pray that you would open our hearts, that you would speak to us today through your word by the power of your Holy Spirit and lead us into a deeper understanding of your love for us 
and how you are calling out of us a deeper love for others. Lord, we lay at the foot of your cross the burdens of our hearts that we might be more free to encounter you here through your word today. We give you our sins and disappointments, and we just lay them at your feet. We thank you for the forgiveness and grace that are ours in Jesus Christ through his work on the cross. And Lord, we lift to you those whom we know and love who are sick or facing uncertain diagnoses, and we pray your healing mercies upon your people. We also lift to you those who grieve, and we pray your comfort upon them. I pray especially this morning for my sister, Sherry, uh, who lost her husband this week to cancer. I just pray your grace, mercy, and comfort over her, over her two kids and their families, and over everyone that loved and lost Lou. So we just pray, Father, your comfort and peace over our hearts today. We lift before you this country and its leaders at every level of government, elected and appointed. We pray for wisdom and discernment in the decisions that are before them. We lift to you our men and women in uniform who serve to protect and defend the freedoms we hold so dear as Americans. We pray your protection over them. We pray especially for those who are in harm's way. We ask that you would bring them home safely. We lift to you those who've returned home from their service changed as a result of the sacrifices they've made for our country. And we pray your healing over them, mind, body, and soul. We pray that you would use us, your church, to minister that grace to them when they need it. And Lord, we lift to you your church here at Hope and all over the world. And we pray that your light would continue to shine into this dark and hurting world that your word would go forth through your people and that it would not return to you empty. We lift to you the churches that we support through our missions, giving, and we just pray your blessing over all those efforts. We lift to you Paul and Elizabeth Branch in Guatemala, uh, what you're doing through John and Diane Davis in Laredo, Laredo, Texas. We lift to you our sister church in Camajuani, Cuba, we lift Patchy and Marilyn Casada to you in Havana, Cuba, and we lift what Robbie and Joyce Hamd are doing in Beirut, Lebanon, as well as others that are laboring there uh, for your sake. And we lift up Monica and Benjamin Bailey in the Middle East, and we pray your blessing over their work in that midst. And we just pray, Father, you be with us now as we open your word, open our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um. So, we have been in a series of messages this summer moving through the last four books of uh, the Bible before you get to the last one. So, four out of the last five has been our, our journey. And most of these letters are very short and to the point and have very uh, targeted purposes behind their authorship. And then we we decided to finish the series by getting into the book of 1 John. It's decidedly the longest of these four letters, and we've been looking at the way in which uh, we think that the Apostle John is the author of, these, of three of these four letters, and that when he wrote 1 John, he was writing, well, all three of his letters, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, creatively named, I must say, um, 
were directed to a group of churches where he was once a pastor in and around the, the city of Ephesus. Um, and this is all a little, there's a little bit of speculation involved. He may have had other audiences in mind, but we think this is where he was writing back to. And he had been a pastor there. He had known these churches. And at this time period, all churches were very, very small. It was illegal for, for Christians to assemble and worship. Um, they were guilty under the Roman Empire uh, of what was their charge against them was atheism, which is an odd charge to levy against a Christian, at least in this day and age. Um, but the idea was they refused to recognize the deity of Caesar, and therefore they refused to recognize a deity or the deity, and they were then guilty of, of failure to acknowledge that important component of Roman rule. Therefore, it was illegal for them to assemble, and their assemblies consequently were very small. They met in people's houses uh, throughout these communities, and the word spread very well in that, in that sort of micro context. Um, but John realized very quickly, or after a few years, uh, that there was some problems that came with the outsourcing of everything, and one of those problems was people could begin to, to vary, to deviate from the truth very easily because there, weren't, there wasn't the ability to sort of meet and decide together what the boundaries of our theology was. And so John writes one letter to these churches that says, um, hey, don't believe just anybody. Don't, and if somebody doesn't confess Jesus as fully human and fully God, don't let them in. But then he has to write another letter <laughs> that says, when I said don't let them in, I, I meant like don't let in the people that are leading you astray, but do let in the people who were, who were correctly dividing the word of truth and supporting the church and spreading the gospel. Let them in, but don't let these other people in to deceive you and, and lead you astray. And so he's, he's fighting on both sides of this, of this issue, trying to keep the church inside the lanes. And 1 John is a very different letter, and John's authorship style, his writing style, is very different, uh, particularly in this letter. It's interesting. If you read the Gospel of John, all of the themes that are, that are prevalent in the Gospel of John are prevalent in the, the letter of 1 John. But the way that John writes in this letter to these churches is very cyclical in nature. And you could almost say it's repetitive because he cycles back and through all the same themes. And then he also has a strong affinity for uh, contrast imagery, like light and dark and good and evil and truth and lies and all these different contrasts. And so that's the style, and I'll just tell you when you're reading through 1 John, don't be thrown by that style. Like he'll, he'll go off on a, on a tangent against liars or something. And he's only doing that to make the clarity of the truth stand out. And so he's not, he's not um, like hyper negative. He's just using really graphically uh, opposed images to, to emphasize his points. So we get to, today, uh, the last half 
of a chapter, chapter 4 in the book of 1 John. If you're looking in your Bible for 1 John, go all the way to Revelation, that's the last book in there, and turn left, and it'll be a few pages back from the book of Revelation. Um, but I'm going to read with you, and it'll be on the screen behind me, uh, this passage is just from the letter of 1 John, chapter 4, verses 13 through 21. And we're, we're going to take a look at what John is saying in this passage. And if you've been following along with this series at all, you will see these cyclical themes sort of woven back into what John is saying. Um, and that's just part of his style, so bear with it. Uh, 1 John, chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So, there's cyclical John writing in his very unique style, actually. Um, and we've, I've compared it in past weeks to the spirograph, that little thing you had maybe as a kid, and you've, it's got like little gears and holes in the gears, and you put your pen in there, and you circle it around, and it makes stars or flowers or whatever. Um, and uh, then you can throw different colors in there and just get some really cool designs. And then by about December 28th, it goes back in its box and it never comes out again until it's sold on eBay for 50 bucks, you know, 50 years later, so, which is kind of what I did. I bought one for this series so the kids could play with it. Um, but I had to have the one that was made in 1967, which would have been the one that I used when I was a kid, so went retro on them. Um, but that is very symbolic of John's writing style. He's cycling back and back and back, and then he's changing colors and using contrast. And um, we have these 
these themes that are clearly at the forefront of John's interest for God's people. Like these are the things that the Apostle John knows that Christians need to remember. And so let's just look at this passage and the themes that John cycles through in, in this portion of his letter. And for answering that question, what is it that we need to take away from this text? And as I do this, I'm, I'm, we've got a couple of doozies coming up in the next couple of weeks in this series of things that John says that may not make sense at first and will sort of beg some questions. And so we're going to just continue in this series to stop at the end and stop for questions. So if you're, if you're reading this, if you're reflecting on this and you have a question, please write it down, make note of it, circle something, and at the end of the message we'll stop for questions, okay? So, the first thing that John is focusing on in this cycle of, of words is the idea that we are called to know God's love. And I cannot emphasize enough the, the historical context, the cultural context into which John is writing. Most of the recipients of these letters are, are in a Greco-Roman world, and their worldview has lots of gods in it, and none of them, none of them have love for humanity. The, the Greek gods, the Roman gods, however you want to phrase them or name them, they were not known for loving you. Uh, you were expected to have a certain degree of fear that they might mess with you because Greek mythology is full of stories of those gods interfering in human life and wrecking people. And that's often how the Greeks and the Romans would explain bad things happening as well. The gods were in a bad mood that day. They decided to mess with someone and look what happened. So go make your offering at the temple and make sure you do a good job of it and you're not, you know, stingy because you don't want that God to mess with you. And so into that context, John writes, I want you to know that God loves you. I want you to know what love, what divine affection feels like. I want you to know that it's real. I want you to know that it's true. I want you to know that God loves you. And so he begins by telling us how we can know God's love. He, we can know God's love because the objects of God's affection for whom he went to the cross and atoned for their sins through his own death, those objects of his love have received the deposit of his Holy Spirit. So think about it this way. This God that is being spoken of by John is a God of love. And when he loves you, he redeems you from your sin. Instead of forcing you to go to the temple and make a sacrifice, he went to the cross and made one final sacrifice to free you from, let's call it, religious obligation, to free you and to bring you into his family and to sort of seal the deal, he opens your heart and deposits there his spirit. 
his presence. God himself lives within the heart of the believer. So this is what I think John is saying. God loves you. He went to the cross. He died for your sins. And in that equation, he opens your heart and deposits there the Holy Spirit, his very self, his presence, and he, he gives you, as we, as we see in the book of Ephesians under the teachings of the Apostle Paul, he gives you the gift of faith through which you can experience all of this relationship that God wants between you and him. So that in his love, he does all of the necessary work to bring about your forgiveness, your freedom, and your capacity to relate to him through faith. And to seal the deal, he puts in your heart the Holy Spirit himself. This should give us, as children of God, when we receive the Spirit, we should receive it in such a way that it serves to confirm our faith, that our God is alive within us, now, I'll tell you from my own experience, I live, I live most easily in the physical world. That's where I do my worst work, <laughs> let's put it that way. Um, it's easy for me to live there, to focus there, to stay there, to think about physical things of this world. God puts his spirit in my heart, and I'm not always listening. I'm not the most spiritually sensitive guy. And so I might just blaze through a day focused on the physical aspects of my little reality and never stop to contemplate the presence of God within me. My wife has words for those days. Well, for me, on those days. right? I won't repeat them here. Um, but this is... This is Sometimes that deposit of the Holy Spirit gets lost in the fray of my other thoughts, desires, and actions, right? So John goes on. He says, you've been given the Spirit of God. It's a gift that's been placed within you for a purpose. And part of that purpose is to confirm your faith, to affirm you as a recipient of God's love, did you deserve it? No, neither did I, right? But he loves you, and therefore he puts this gift in your heart, and he wants you to better see his heart, God the Father, that God the Father has a heart for his people, and that heart is to redeem, to restore, to renew to recapture that aspect of you that gets lost in this physical world. And so there's this spiritual truth about you that God believes. And we don't always see it or believe it, but John says that we are to see and believe. Verse 16, we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. See and believe that God loves you. See his heart to redeem. 
So you have received the Spirit. You've seen the display of God's love through the, through the coming of the sending of His Son to redeem, to restore, to atone. And we are, as a result, to confess the Son. So, strangely, I don't believe that you can confess the Son until God has done His work in your heart. And it's a strange little sequence of events, but I believe that it works this way. God looks down upon humanity and says, oy vey, what a mess, right? And then through us, he moves so that in, in some way, some glimmer of God's light bounces off one of us and catches another person's eye, and God opens their eyes to see that through his word, through love, demonstrated by another one of his children, and the light comes on. That, I believe, is God's doing. And John will say in this passage, we love because God first loved us. I believe that all of this begins at the initiative of God, and that somehow he works through broken vessels like us, because, let's face it, broken vessels do a great job of letting things out like light or love, hopefully, not always. Um, but God then, through this spreading of his light and his love, he, he continues to redeem and to restore and to renew and to forgive. And it just keeps happening. And we, we call this uh, evangelism, but it's really the movement of the heart of God out into the world and for some reason, he chooses to limit his movement by only moving through his people and through his word coming from the mouths and hearts of his people. And so it happens. And we get caught up in this, and this light goes on, and something changes, and we understand something that we never knew before to be true, that God loves us. This is the, the starting point of our relationship with God, that he's done all of this and taken the initiative to break into our dark and hurting hearts and shine the light of his love. And so here we are, called first to know God's love, to receive the Spirit, to see the Father's heart, to confess the Son as Lord and Savior, and then we are called to grow in God's love. To know it, to, to get it, to see it, for the light to come on, the switch to flip, for us to say, whoa, what is going on? Because I don't deserve what's being shown to me. And then once we grasp all of that, we are called to be part of that cosmic spreading of God's love in the world. And John says, if you want to grow in God's love, you first are called to abide in him. And this is, an, this is a, a phrase that, is, that John uses in his gospel, primarily in chapter 17. I highly recommend it to you in your reading this week. Just open to your New Testament, the gospel of John, chapter 17, and read and reflect on this idea of abiding in the vine. I am the vine, Jesus says. Abide in me. So, to abide in God means we are called to dwell on the main thing. What is the main thing? 
God is love. It's all about love. This is the defining aspect of who our God is. He is love. He's not just the God of love. He is love. This has profound implications that not only does he love us, but loving us is entirely who he is. This is his heart. This is his whole being. This is love that we cannot fully comprehend, but that has been fully expressed to us through his son. You, brothers and sisters, are forgiven. You are loved. You have been redeemed at a price that is difficult to comprehend. But he loves you enough that he went to the cross for you. Dwell in that. Sit in his love. Soak it in. Because it's, what, it's the main ingredient in the stuff of life. Love. I, I um, was with some family this weekend, and one of my nephews, uh, he and his wife have, I think their baby is five weeks old. Ooh, do you remember that? Oh, oh, the sleep deprivation. The, yeah, oh, that's, that's all you, I, I'm done right there. It's, that's enough, right? Um, and, and maybe that's a little too close of a memory for some of you. I don't know. Don't want to trigger your PTSD. But we have a reboot for that if you want to come on uh, Tuesday nights. Uh, we're ready for you. Um, but I, I just, you know, everybody is in the same room, and I'm looking at my nephew, and he just looks exhausted, right? And he drove down from Dallas on Saturday morning to be at, the, at this funeral for his great-great-aunt. And, uh, and then he had to drive back to Dallas that afternoon, um, and I, I have not seen that look in a long time. Uh, well, I've, I've not had that look on my face in a long time, but I knew what it was. And even in the midst of the exhaustion, I looked at him and I said, have you, and this is, this is his first child, he and his wife's first kid, five weeks old, and I said, have you ever loved another human being as much as this baby and he's like no it's unbelievable like it's it's just hard to describe I'm like yes it is and the truth is that's the way God looks at you he, he looks at you that way and he just cherishes your being your presence in his arms he loves you and he wants you to dwell in that truth, to dwell on that main thing. And he wants his love to build within you a confidence for life. So that whatever happens, whatever besets you, whatever recurs in your life that's not positive, whatever comes about that you don't want, whatever your circumstances may be, he is there, and his love is the defining aspect of who you are. So that the defining aspect of God is now also yours. You are loved. Have 
confidence, know that you are safe in his arms. Can I just read these words again? There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. I don't think we need to spend a lot of time reflecting on how much the world uses fear to compel us into actions, right? Like this is so common, so daily, so routine. Um, and if, if like going back to the new parent thing, you walk into a store that sells things for babies, what's the number one selling point? Safety, right? And there's even a product line called Safety First, and it's a baby product line, right? And the f they want you to be afraid, and obviously we want to be responsible. I'm not saying don't put your kids in car seats. That's not the point. Um, <laughs> we made it through childhood without no car seats. We're fine. Yes, mom's arm was your restraint system. Yes. Yeah. Um, but my point is, we are driven by fear, both positively and negatively. And, and hopefully, in the midst of all that, we, we, we can parse out things and make wise decisions. Um, but how compelling of a motivator fear seems to be in the world at large. And God says, no, my relationship with you is not based on fear. And that in and of itself is terrifying, right? Like God, God is saying, you can't control me. Like I, that's not the basis of this relationship. Like if you put in enough in the offering, then I'll leave you alone. Like a Greco-Roman God. He just says, I love you. Do what your heart tells you to do, which is a really dangerous thing to say to a human being. And then he just loves us. And he wants us to dwell and rest and sit and soak in that love. And he wants that love to push out of your heart the space to take up the space that fear once held. Perfect love casts out fear. God doesn't want you to be afraid of him or anything else. So, abide in him, have confidence in his love, and look past your fears. Cling to his love. You are safe in his arms in life in death, and everything in between, you are loved. Abide, have confidence, and look past your fears. Then, once you've known God's love and you've grown in God's love, or while you're growing in his love, he wants you to show God's love to the people around you. To actually let them see what he's like. John reminds us in verse 19 that we are to go directly to the source. It all begins 
with the love of God. Go directly to the heart of God. Accept love from the one you cannot see so that you can express his love to those you can see. John uses this beautiful contrast between what you can see and what you cannot see. He's like, and then he says, if you, if you cannot love the one you can see, maybe you're not doing so great abiding in the love of the one you can't see. In other words, if you want to be able to love others well, you have to get back to that core truth that God is love, that he loves you, and he's calling you to live, abide, soak in that love. Because there you find the, the well from which you can draw to water other people's hearts. It comes from him. He is the source. He is the first cause. We can go directly back to that truth that God is love and that we love because he first loved us. We then are called to reflect the light of his love. And John uses these, these metaphors of light and darkness throughout this, this work. But when you and I can somehow, in a, in a clouded, diminished way, still manage to reflect some ray of God's love to another, we are giving them a glimpse of who God is. Again, I, I, I want to say this with reverence, but it's also a little irreverent. Like, I question his judgment. Like, why would you choose me to reflect something as beautiful as love? Because I already told you this. I have those days. My wife has words for me on those days. Um... I'm not the best choice. But here's, here's why God does this. Because his love is even brighter, more clear when it's able to bounce off of broken vessels like our own. When it's able to get past our sin, our selfishness, our self-interest, and still shine and reflect something of his nature to another, it is at its best. That is what God is up to all the time. We are to reflect the light of his love, to catch a glimpse of who God is, and then to give the people around us a glimmer of who God is. All right told you I would pause for questions. I'm going to do that now. Any questions from today's text? And I'm only doing this to get us in the habit because the next couple of weeks have some really weird verbiage that we're going to need to sort through. So, anyone? Anyone? Dr. True? Okay. Why do you, that's a great question. Why do you think God set things up 
for him not to be seen. So I have, I have two, two tracks here. One has to do with um, the way that creation works. So Einstein taught us that everything that exists has a starting point. So what are those things? Time, space, matter, and energy, I think is the big four. Um, so anything that, that falls under those categories has a beginning point in time, which Einstein would also say that sort of sets up the idea that there must be something that existed before time, space, matter, and energy that's not comprised of time, space, matter, and energy. That's something we can call God. Now, Einstein was not a Christian. He was a theist. He believed there was something that created everything. Um, he was uh, ethnically Jewish, but not a practicing Jew. But he was friendly to this idea of a first cause, of, of a divine origin or intelligent designer, etc. Now, when that something that exists outside of everything we understand um, creates this universe in which things are understood through time, space, matter, and energy, that something is inherently unseeable. So there, there are, there are um, reasons in physics, I guess you could say, that explain why we cannot see something that is not comprised of space, matter, time, or energy. These are the things, that, and the only things, which we can measure. Um, so, then, on the other side of that, it also makes sense that a being who is inherently, we call, we call that something other spiritual, he's not made of time, space, matter, or energy, so that a spiritual being would primarily reveal himself through love. So you cannot see love. You cannot, uh, well, you can try to test love. I don't recommend it. Um, you can't really measure it, but you can know it. You, can, you know what love is when you experience it, when you express it. You, you, that's common. And that tells us that we are not only comprised of time, space, matter, and energy. It is logical to assume if you can experience if you can know what love is, that you also contain something of this other within you that transcends time, space, matter, and energy. But I think those two answers that there's a disconnect between the first cause and all that's created um, because you can't measure what isn't in the universe or of the universe. And then the nature of spirituality and love are such that they are from somewhere else. These things come from the first cause. Did that help? Okay. Any other questions? How, how is it evident that a person is a Christian? So Jesus would have answered that question or did answer that question by saying you, can, you will know them by their fruit. 
So the fruit of a person's life, of their relationships, of their heart, can be uh, tasted, if you will, by the people around them. And so if, if what you're getting from another person is consistent with love, joy, peace, kindness, faithfulness, or goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, right, then you, you are getting the evidence that that person has this, the Spirit of God within them. Anyone else? Yes, ma'am. So then you have two possibilities, right? You have the possibility that it's a false confession, or you have the possibility that they are in a, uh, a backwards slide that is not, they are not currently defined by the fruit of their faith. They're defined by something else. And then the, the hope is that that slide stops at some point and they return to the heart of God and find their center. Did that address the question? Yes, sir. So, entonces, ¿estás contestando la pregunta pasada? Ok. Galatas 4... So, Pastor Alfredo, I think, is responding to the questions of both the question of how do we know that someone is a believer and what do we do with people who have said they were believers and then are not acting like believers. And he's referring us to um, Galatians 4, 4 and following. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you were sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And I would emphasize that um, you know, this idea that, that we are adopted into God's family um, is absolutely central to our understanding of our salvation. We are, we are orphaned by our sin, and we are redeemed and adopted by God into his family. But it's, 
really important to remember that our standing in God's family is not based on our behavior. It's not based on how well we conduct ourselves or um, how poorly we conduct ourselves. We cannot disqualify ourselves from our standing in God's family. We are redeemed. We are adopted. We belong to him. He may not always be proud of us, but he is always our loving father. And his heart is to bring us back to that place where we are living and shining his light. So, all right. More questions to come in the, in the future portions of the series, I think. So let's, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll begin, move towards closing, concluding our service. God, our loving Father, we thank you that you are love, that love is who you are, and it's how you relate to us, that you love us, you have redeemed us, you have adopted us as your children, you have deposited your Holy Spirit within us, and that none of this is dependent upon our behavior. It is only because you first loved us. Lord, help us to dwell in that truth of your love, to live from that place where we soak in your love and then demonstrate it to those around us. Fill us with your spirit. Lead us to reflect who you are to the people around us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.